1: Hey folks, Kaiser here. Before we get started, I want to remind everybody about the upcoming Sub-China Women's Conference, How Women Are Shaping the Rising Global Power. That's going to be on Monday, May 20th at the Harmony Club in New York City. It's going to be our third annual conference. There are going to be quite a number of very eminent women in a number of fields. We have Ariana Huffington who's going to be delivering a keynote address. We've got Wayson Christensen, who's CEO of Morgan Stanley. We've got Merit Janao, the dean of the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Lots and lots of former Seneca guests you're familiar with. Everyone from Sam Sachs, the amazing Sam Sachs. Virginia Tan, who's founder of Lean In Tech and Teja Ventures. We've also got Lenora Chu, who, of course, is the author of Little Soldiers, a huge star-studded affair. Jeremy and I will be recording an episode of the Cynical Podcast with none other than Charlene Barshevsky, the former U.S. trade representative, who, of course, helped China's entry into the WTO. So make sure to come along and hopefully see you there. Once again, that is May 20th. That's a Monday at the Harmony Club in New York. You can get your tickets at SupChina and there are still tickets available. So get them now. (music) Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion on current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our app, and, of course, at the website, subchina.com. We offer uncensored reporting on everything from the burgeoning tech cold war, to the and Road, from the latest infrastructure undertakings to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We're sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from the mile-high city of Denver, Colorado, where I am taking part in the annual conference of the Association for Asian Studies. Joining me today is the Rootness Tootness podcast co-host in Middle Tennessee, the laudable me, sometimes referred to as Jeremy Goldcorn in English-speaking circles. Jeremy Greet the people, will not you? <laughs> Good morning, people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that that was that, uh, that. wasn't actually uh, very um, clever or over the top. Clever or over the top, yeah, Kaiser. Clever. So, but I, I, you know, we settle into middle-aged mediocrity, I
1: suppose. <laughs> so, Jeremy, I have a riddle for you. Uh huh. What do Michael Jordan, Leon Trotsky, Emperor Hirohito, and Alvin Toffler? What do they all have in common? They all have O's in their names. Okay. Mm. No, yeah, no, that's true. Besides that, okay, so besides the obvious O's in their names.
0: Could you possibly be referring to the fact that they all number among the People's Daily's list of 50 foreigners shaping China's
1: development? Jeremy, your your breadth of knowledge truly astonishes me. I mean, that that's... that's Never amazing.
0: let it be said that I do not read the People's Daily. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it won't be said. It will not be said. Uh, yes, indeed, they are all on that list—that that hallowed list of foreigners who shaped China's development. I, I think you and me didn't make that list, but anyway, who, who who is Alvin Toffler? So I've actually known his name for a very very long time. We had this book with this pink cover and uh, this really futuristic font on it. It was called Future Shock, and it was on the shelves at home when I was a kid. I never read it. You know,
0: um, I have exactly the same memory in Johannesburg. Yeah, exa- Right. We had wow. the same Everyone book. had it. It was like a huge
1: seller. Exactly. The pink yeah. cover. And that kind of like ro- robo font that they use, that really futuristic font. I,
0: and I, I was sort of scared of it as a kid. It was kind of like this adult book. And, you know, it, it seemed scary, future shock. I never no, wanted yeah. to open you're, it. No, yeah. You're right. You're right.
1: Yeah. You're anyway. Right. Uh, anyway, so uh, we were, you know, all back then sort of experiencing this post industrial condition that he said where we're, you know, absorbing too much much change in too short a time. I mean, that, that idea seems rather unobjectionable and, and maybe would have made for a fine TED Talk, no doubt. Uh, had those things been around back then, he probably would have a podcast today. <laughs> anyway, a, a decade later, Alvin and his wife Heidi Toffler, who actually co-authored that first book as well, uh, they published a book called the Third Wave, so that was 1980, uh, which was another book about the future, but this time it came out at a very particular moment in China, the beginnings of, of China's reform and opening movement, and caught the attention of some of the really important leaders of that movement. The Tofflers
0: developed an interesting relationship with one of these leaders in particular, a Mr. Zhao Ziyang, who championed and mainstreamed their ideas. Zhao would, of course, become General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party in 1987, and then was ousted in the turmoil of 1989. He died in house arrest in January 2005, and to many people, remains something of a hero of the 80s, although there are those who uh, think he's a rat.
1: Oh, who thinks he's a rat? I don't know. know. No, No one in our good company thinks so. Anyway. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Speak for yourself, sir. But.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, with us to talk about this this odd, but arguably quite important and ultimately world-shaping relationship uh, is Julian Gewertz, who is Academy Scholar at Harvard's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. Julian completed his doctorate in history in 2018 at the University of Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. And if that weren't enough, he's the author of a terrific book on the early years of Gaiga Kaifang on reform and opening called Unlikely Partners, Chinese Reformers, Western Economists, and the Making of Global China. It's a terrific book that, despite its origin as Julian's undergraduate thesis, <laughs> is very scholarly and uh, makes an important, important argument. Uh, now he's written the paper that we're going to talk about today, which is called The Futurists of Beijing, Alvin Toffler, Zhao Ziyang, and China's New Technological Revolution, 1979 to 1991. Julian Gewürz, a long overdue welcome to Seneca. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm delighted to be joining you.
0: Julian, give us a little background on Alvin and Heidi Toffler. I remember reading about them just a few years ago and again after Alvin's death in 2016 and was surprised at how much influence they seem to have had in China. Who were they? What was the central argument of the third wave? And, you know, was it as bad as Kaiser says that it would have been a TED talk? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I actually think you understated it, at Kaiser. I think that they are partly responsible for inventing the idea of Ted talks, which is very intelligent bullshit. Um, But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) enough with the nonsense from the Peanut Gallery. Julian, tell us about Alvin and Heidi Toffler. Who the hell are they? Well, I think
2: that the two points that you've raised about them, first, that both of you growing up in very different contexts had future shock on your shelves, and on the other hand, that uh, one might regard their ideas with some suspicion uh, today, I think that those two perspectives capture who they are. They were best selling authors. They were an enormous uh, cultural presence. But even in their own time, let alone in retrospect, in the United States and elsewhere, they were viewed with tremendous suspicion by more serious highbrow folks, because their ideas in writing were broad brushstroke, highly ambitious, one might even say somewhat purple descriptions of the way in which society was changing in their view and might change in the future. So the third wave, which was really their second large bestseller after Future Shock, as you said, came out in 1980. And the basic argument was that there is a way of viewing history that the Tofflers believe makes a lot of sense. First wave change is the coming of agricultural society, the uh, rising of uh, those basic forms of of human society. The second wave was the Industrial Revolution, that major shift. And the third wave, the title of their book, is what they perceive to be happening all around them at the time, in, in the late 70s. A rise of decentralization, globalization, and especially information technology. So that's the sort of contour of what the argument of the third wave is. Now, one of the things that surprised me most when I got into uh, reading material from China in the mid to late 1980s was that this name, Toffler, kept coming up in the most serious of ways. It was not the way in which, for instance, the New York Times would cover him, which was with a combination of uh, wonder and condescension. It was
1: being taken deadly seriously. So it'd be like if 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 we saw Tom Friedman's name showing up all the time now. And
2: in- sure, yeah. That I mean, mean, I think be- I
1: think even even more
2: extreme than that. I mean, I've I've struggled to come up with a really tight analogy. Uh, you know, in large part because of perhaps a personality trait of not wanting to offend. But uh, there, it, it it's pretty it's pretty remarkable to think about. And I think that in the Chinese context, what we can see from looking at the materials. And and one of the things that I argue in this article is that Toffler resonated with priorities that already existed in China and helped bring them in a new and to many Chinese
1: reformist leaders very exciting direction so yeah i mean you can totally see why it fit in but i mean just talking about it in in the non-china context these observations are either so spot on they kind of blended seamlessly into i mean they, they sort of became part of, of the mental furnishings for, for us or they were just so banal that they weren't even worth commenting on right, oh, well, some what, of, which was it
2: <laughs> so some of some of his ideas are pretty uh outlandish for instance he predicts that computers rising will lead to every home having what he called an electronic cottage uh, which was a sort of separate room he didn't he didn't anticipate how small computers would get but he did think that Everyone would would need one. And so there would be a sort of electronic cottage in the back where you would go and do your information age activity (laughs) before returning to your domestic setting. That's quaint. (laughs) Uh, So there are certainly some things like that where you can see predictions that misfired. There has been a somewhat interesting series of, of articles written, including by Farhad Manju at the New York Times, about maybe we should go back to Toffler and see some of his predictions have borne out. Certainly the prediction of information technology completely overtaking every aspect of our lives was prescient and in 1980 was was certainly
0: not a given it wasn't
1: you don't think it was a given back then i mean i think yeah okay that's, oh that's no
0: I, I i definitely not i mean i i remember an old family friend in johannesburg was the uh, daily telegraph correspondent uh, for africa and when this wasn't even in the 80s this was in 90 about the time i left south africa so the internet was just getting going 95 94 it must have been and i remember I remember Chris Munyon, his name was, laughing at the idea of websites replacing newspapers. I mean, that was 1995. 1994. So, I mean, uh, I don't think that was a given in 19- in the 1980s at all, Kaiser.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm the guy who remembers having a passionate dispute with a guy who, who insisted that graphic user interfaces were going to supplant DOS. And I said, no, it's never going to happen. That's just, no. I, I knew all the keyboard <laughs> commands on, you know, on WordStar or whatever. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, do not count my predictions for anything. I, I am no Alvin Toffler. No, no. So, uh,
0: Julian, do we know how Zhao Ziang came to learn of the works and the ideas of the Tofflers? Uh, Alvin Toffler visited Beijing in December of 1982. What do we know of what happened on that trip and whether uh, there was much of a buzz among the reform-minded bunch in the government uh, uh, on the occasion of Toffler's visit? So the really important context for Toffler coming to China is a
2: topic that I've written about in, in the book that Kaiser mentioned and, and elsewhere, which is, that beginning in the mid to late 1970s, Chinese officials and intellectuals began as the Cultural Revolution ended, Mao died and Hua Feng and then Deng Xiaoping came to power. They began to search the world for ideas that were of interest, might inspire, and might have relevance to China's modernization. So the translator who actually brought Alvin Toffler's works to China initially, uh, a man named Dong Le Shan, he went to the United States to scout new ideas. It was a trip to find what books he should be translating. And on that trip, he came across a lot of American intellectuals he met with in his recollection, talking about the third wave, talking about Alvin Toffler. And when he came back to Beijing, he published a short summary of the book in a leading intellectual journal. From there, He decided to invite Alvin Toffler to come. This was not a very high-level delegation. This was not a very high-level visit. It was mainly to meet with intellectuals and some mid-level officials. Toffler was extremely ambitious about this trip. He had really coveted the opportunity to go to China for a long time. The most senior meeting he did have, though, which was quite interesting, was with the mayor of Shanghai, Wang Daohan. And Wang Daohan, who was a mentor of Jiang Zemin and uh, an interesting figure in his own right, uh, was you know did there was there was some interaction there but overall this was a trip where he brought copies of the third wave and handed them out oh. uh, he was very much his own publicist in this sense and he and heidi toffler uh really tried to make a case to everyone they met with that the implications of the third wave for a country like China could be really significant it was only after that and then after an internal or nebu translation of the third wave appeared in china that these ideas got to the state council where Zhao Ziyang was based as premier at that time. And it had a pretty uh, quick turnaround from its first appearance in China to in October of 1983, Zhao giving a speech at a conference that he convened on what he called the New Technological Revolution, where he specifically cited Alvin Toffler in the third wave and talked about what those ideas had
1: had meant to him. Dong uh, Dunglasan was he, the translator. Uh, was he? Did he hold office? Was he a ranking bureaucrat kind of any kind? Or just...
2: I, be- I believe he had been uh, at the Xinhua apparatus in ah, the in the state media apparatus before. And he's a, he's an interesting figure. If I'm not mistaken, he translated 1984. And uh, he also, I think, did the second authorized translation of Red Star over China, mm. in updated for the, for the post-Mount Europe.
0: It's funny, this is in some ways a story of China for foreigners in the 80s and 90s. You could have any shtick if you were a hustler. <laughs> you could arrive in Beijing with your books and hand them out, and next thing the Politburo is listening to you. Those days are long gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the Tofflers were... obviously were pretty prescient in figuring out... <laughs> <laughs> the uh the Beijing eighties uh, nineties foreigner scam anyway
1: yeah so so Julian your book which you just alluded to uh, the main thesis of your book if I may is is that there was a lot of proactive learning right that they they went out into the world they went to relatively successful Eastern Bloc countries uh, like Hungary and they also went to the West they went to Germany they went to the UK they went especially to the United States, and invited a lot of foreign experts there, uh, which is, you know, again, this is what's happening. Or this, in some sense, could be a, another chapter of your book, right? At the time that you wrote your book, were you aware of the Tofflerian influence?
2: You know, I had come across in material that I was looking at, Toffler's name, he was so popular at a certain point in the 1980s that it's hard to miss if you're going through uh, intellectual publications or looking uh, looking through the records of what uh, some officials were talking about. But my first book was focused pretty tightly on economists. And while Toffler's ideas had real implications for technology policy and modernization policy, which of course are intimately tied to economic development, I was... I I was only marginally aware. And it was one of the things that I knew that I wanted to come back to and that I wanted to think about. But to be totally frank, I did not expect when I started looking into it that I would end up finding a story from the Chinese perspective, a very significant interest that was more than just an intellectual craze or a fad, but that really connected to fundamental questions about technology policy, how the Chinese state should support new technologies And in a sense, the future that the Chinese leadership was envisioning for China
0: itself. Julian, there were people who were critical of Toffler's, of the Toffler's ideas, right? I mean, after all, wasn't he suggesting some historical laws that were at odds with proper Marxist dialectical materialism? Definitely.
2: So one of the reasons that I knew that there was more here than just a story of a random person who got popular in China uh, was that there was a very direct denunciation of the third wave that came out of the propaganda office. And this came out after had already endorsed these ideas. Toffler was denounced in 1984 during the anti-spiritual pollution campaign's waning days for basically proposing an alternative theory of history that directly contradicted, in the words of this propaganda directive, the theory that socialism would triumph over capitalism and the theory of, of the revolution that was of the social revolution. So one of the things that this indicated to me was, well, first, there are very few TED talks that... Uh, spark that degree of of denunciation, even in the era of Global Times blog posting. But on the other hand, there is this extraordinary implication from some of this that if more conservative or, or orthodox Marxist officials in China were taking these ideas so seriously, we can ask, what was at stake? And to them, I think that what was at stake was nothing less than the vision of China's future itself. The idea that Marxism would be perceived as somehow out of date was a very threatening idea. And especially in a context where the open-endedness of China's possible directions was so vast in the 1980s, ideas like Toffler's, though it may seem surprising to us, had potential ideological implications.
1: Right, right. How unusual was it for a foreign thinker to have his ideas elevated to, to the extent that he, by really you know, near canonical status by Zhao and uh, you know by the by reformers around him? Seems very unusual. It it, it was
2: very unusual. One of the most striking things when you look at the intellectual uh, and policy debates of the 1980s is there was a real eclectic approach to taking aspects of foreign ideas that might be interesting or useful, interpreting them, adapting them. uh, The emphasis on so-called Chinese characteristics paramount in multiple senses. Good old Chinese syncretism. That's right. But in the case of Toffler, one of the things that did surprise me was how clear and forceful the lineages are. You know, I think we can think about much of the engagement with international economic ideas or other ideas as a kind of bricolage or, or what the political scientist Wendy Lutert is calling policy collaging. But in this case, I think there's a more uh, a more direct line where the ideas were themselves vague and open-ended in the case of Toffler, and that gave Chinese officials and intellectuals room to fill in the uh, broad brushstrokes that he painted in his works.
0: So Julian, I I was preparing for this podcast. I was was remembered that the Tofflers had visited Beijing when I was still living there. I think it was early in the Xi Jinping uh, era. And they gave a a, a series of sycophantic interviews to state media. And they sort of came off as complete patsies. Or at least that was my impression. And I think there were a lot of other people in sort of China-watching circles who thought their cheerleading was kind of disgusting, or perhaps are just <laughs> jealous of their access. Um, did you follow that? So I didn't follow that closely, but I do think there's an
2: interesting trend here where thinkers who have perhaps felt that their legacies in their home countries are not so secure, who have perhaps felt that uh, they are the subject of, of some derision at home, find an alternative world, an alternative so-called socialist marketplace for ideas. The big in China phenomenon. (laughs) Right, exactly. And, and, you know, I think that we always have to be uh, very, very aware and cautious of what the implications of that are, because, of course, one of the challenges is from the perspective of an individual, it may seem simply like an opportunity for self-promotion. But in a system where ideas, especially in the Xi Jinping era, are so controlled and where the space for discourse is narrowing, the phenomenon of the useful foreigner becomes, I think, very, very present and and something that all of us have to think about in terms of what we say and how we say it and how it might be
1: used. Uh, Julian Jeremy. Who was the name of that other guy? Another sort of futurist who who had the, sort of the same phenomenon. Yes, maybe John Nesbitt. Yeah, yeah, that was it. John yeah. Nesbitt. Do you remember that, Jeremy? Jer- John Nesbitt. N- uh,
0: he did the same kind of uh, um, groveling tour of Beijing, did he?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was really, particularly like obsequious toward. I think it was in, in the in the Jiang Zemin period, right, right. And there were other people too. You know, who, you know, the genius of Zhu Rongji. Yeah, I, 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 so if you can't be famous, you can go to China and be famous. (laughs) Jeremy, we are famous. (laughs) Oh dear. Okay. So nowadays, Li Keqiang is the only engineer, right, on, on, on the Politburo Standing Committee. Yeah. Until 2012, though, it was completely dominated by engineers. I mean, it had been since the 80s, Um, you know, beginning in like in the early 80s, you know, Deng Xiaoping, presumably acting through, you know, Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang, his right hand and left hand and really implemented this policy. He wanted to make over the composition of the Chinese Communist Party. He wanted it to be, what, I think 70 or 80% college educated. He wanted to, to boost S&T intellectuals. Clearly, I mean, look, Dung was all about the four modernizations, so agriculture and industry and defense, but it was science and technology that was his favorite child among, among these. Um, he really kind of set this whole technocratic tendency very much in motion. Was there a Tofflerian influence in this?
2: So I think this is a case where we can see an existing really dominant strain in Chinese politics in this period, long predating any appearance of toddlers. So, I mean, for for (laughs) Zhou Enlai and then for Deng Xiaoping, the crucial importance of science and technology is a driving factor for so many decisions that they made. It's part of the reason for the opening to the United States. It's certainly part of the reasoning for the reform and opening policy. So there is a really dominant strain of the whole history of the People's Republic of China, where trying to master advanced technologies is one of the motive forces behind a lot of Chinese politics. One of the really interesting questions that occurs in the 1980s is how to actually do this, how Mm -hmm. actually to turn these broad goals into concrete policies. And this is one area where the Toffler-inspired technocratic vision that Zhao puts forward is, I think, really important because we see a global information technology revolution occurring and worry among China's leaders that just as they're opening to the world just as China is beginning its process of catching up maybe they'll be left behind again right and the impetus to try to get ahead of the information technology revolution which is one of the central goals that Deng and Zhao work on together, is, I think, a crucial aspect of the 1980s that we haven't really understood so well thus far. It leads to, for instance, the
1: creation of uh, the 863 program, exactly, which, you know, is... Can you unpack that a bit? I mean, I'm not sure everyone remembers what that was. It was something I I looked at quite a bit, but... So the 863
2: program uh, begins in the official story with four Chinese scientists, uh, really distinguished figures with long history in the party state apparatus, writing a letter to Deng, CCing Zhao and Hu, where they propose a really intensive top-down investment initiative to help China master some key technologies. And Deng responds very enthusiastically, and this becomes one of the ways in which China Uh, invests in supercomputing and biotechnology and so on. Because Zhao Ziyang has been written out of history following 1989, his role in all of this has also been marginalized and erased. We can see now, though, that actually when Deng responded so enthusiastically to this, Eight six three proposal, he assigned Zhao to make it happen. In 1986, Zhao had been leading technology policy for several years, all the way back to that New Technological Revolution speech in 1983. So it made a lot of sense for Deng to pass this on to Zhao to keep working on, and we can see it as continuous with those efforts rather than coming out of nowhere.
0: Julian, did Toffler's influence wane after Zhao Ziyang fell from grace, or had his ideas already sunk in and become part of the sort of technophilic, you know, DNA of the or at least the technophilic uh, new ethos of the CCP leadership. So, I think this is a
2: complicated and really interesting question and and I would reframe it slightly by recentering it on the Chinese perspective and saying had the Chinese leadership gotten from Toffler's ideas what they claimed they were getting from those ideas in the 1980s. And The honest truth is that I think this is a pretty mixed story. In fact, China struggled to master information technologies. Uh, This was not a case where the 863 program, for instance, had really immediate, wide-ranging transformational effects on society. The new technological revolution came to China in some sense quite slowly and always in a highly controlled fashion. One reason for this, I believe, is that the leadership that came to power after 1989, epitomized by Jiang Zemin, who became general secretary after Zhao. These figures were engineers, as you said, Kaiser. They had very, very specific visions for what technological development in China would entail. And they were preoccupied in the post-Tiananmen period with ensuring that social stability and control over society
1: were maintained uh, at all times. Part of that was by really courting the S and T intellectuals. I mean, they really went after them in in, in a very uh, explicit way. Shortly after Tiananmen, they had this new policy of what they called uh, national level scientists, who they, they named. I think it was about a thousand individuals. Later, it was it was even more who would have all of their travel expenses reimbursed, who had you know free transportation, who had stipends for for international travel, who were all issued passports. It was. There was a clear sense that um, to win back the intelligentsia, look, they weren't going to win back those crazies in the humanities or uh, in the social sciences, but they were going to win back, God, they were going to win back the, the, the engineers. And I mean, I think that you, you saw that. Um, Eight six three was um, I think it, it hasn't been written about it. You know, it was it was the made in China twenty ma- made in China twenty twenty five of its day. That's right. And there's there's a wonderful book by
2: Evan Feigenbaum called China's Techno Warriors, which yeah, yeah, looks yeah, yeah, at yeah. looks at particularly the influence of military technology on these programs and these agenda items. And I think post Tiananmen, one of the really important aspects of this is that. There was an embargo on technology that could have military applications in China. So the sense of needing to begin really intensively pursuing the capacity to make those technologies within China or to find alternative suppliers outside of the West, that becomes something where the Chinese leadership has seen very acutely following those embargoes why that's necessary. And there, I think we can see the lineages that, that really stretched into the present and into Maiden in China uh, and its and its successor policies.
0: So Julian, I'd like to ask a question. It seems to me, you know, if there is an equivalent to Toffler in the Xi Jinping era, it's probably Tom Friedman. And uh, in some ways, you know, the idea that has animated Xi Jinping is not the sort of substantive Theories about social and economic and technological change in the Toffler's work, but it's the China Dream, you know, based on a column from Tom Friedman, and uh, you know, used and borrowed in... from
1: Peggy Liu, actually, weirdly. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> he was writing about Peggy Liu in that in that column, and uh, ah,
0: okay, so China um, Dream came from her, and, oh. and it, it sort of makes it reminds me of uh, Evan Fagenbaum ex-Polson Institute, ex-diplomat, now some other important think tank that I Carnegie, forget. The Carnegie yeah. Center for International
1: Peace. Okay. Uh,
0: and he talks about how China joins international institutions, and then it, it it sort of accepts the forms, but doesn't really accept the norms. And it, it, in some ways, I, I feel there's sort of a parallel in the 80s, Toffler's ideas were looked at substantively, whereas in the Xi Jinping era, he raids foreign thinkers for their catchphrases. Is there anything in that? Am I going anywhere with this? And <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, I'd have some, I'd have some different ways of, of formulating it. But what I would say is that I think in the 1980s we see a search sometimes for very substantive proposals that can be adapted to Chinese circumstances, but in other times there is completely window dressing type interactions, having a Nobel laureate or some distinguished uh, eminent figure coming to meet with the Chinese leader to bolster their status, all of those forms of more superficial or propagandistic interaction are happening then too. I think right. the big, the biggest difference with the present day is that China and the Xi Jinping administration begin from a position of extraordinary confidence vis-a-vis where they were in the 1980s, but Uh, even as compared to where they were a decade ago. And that confidence, I think, motivates a tremendous amount of the willingness to inhabit on their own terms these international forms. And this is, I think, best exemplified by that famous Davos speech that Xi Jinping gave, where he endorses all sorts of ideas that uh, win him a, a tremendous ovation from that audience. And yet, of course, in practice, we know that his interpretation of ideas like economic globalization or economic openness are very different from your uh, conventional Davos man's view of the world. Uh,
1: audience at the time. Kaiser. Right, exactly. I am, I am exactly. Davos man. So Julian, you've talked about the connection between Toffler and... You know, the the technocratic tendencies or the technophilic tendencies. Uh, I I think these foreign thinkers, people like the Tofflers, are used to give you legitimacy. If you have the imprimatur of this well-regarded foreign uh, technologist or or, or, or a thought leader, as they call them now— Oh, that's great. But I think what was not arguable is that there is still the legacy of this technophilic craze today. I mean, I often talk about this. You just don't see the kind of anxiety about technology in China that you see now in the United States. Whether you're a parent and you're know, obsessing about screen time, you know, Chinese parents don't. China is sort of the land of technology techno-nerd empowerment in, in a lot of ways. It's a place where there's so much, you know, STEM is, is given so much veneration over humanities or social sciences. The uh, nerds are the jocks in high school. Exactly. <laughs> but and, but and they don't even ride by in the Camaro roll down the window and shout, jock, at you, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah but,
2: I, mean, I mean, from my perspective... <laughs> sorry. And it's okay. No, no. no. Um, from my perspective, one of the things that I have become really aware of, and I think that I want to try to understand more, and I think we all in the in the United States need to try to work to understand more, is for a long time we had a vision of the way that technology uh, was going to emerge in China, the internet in particular, that was really about us, about the United States. It's it always like, been about us, right? Well, of course, it's right. Of course, the the endless solipsism of any observer, you know, is is there, but. But the reality, well, the that,
0: endless solipsism of the American observer, one might. Uh, <laughs> you said it, not me. Um,
2: but I think we. I think one of the, to me, exciting uh, implications of some of what I've been writing about it in in relation to Toffler and Zhao and and uh, also in editing an issue of the tech magazine logic on China which is coming out next month oh wow um, which yeah I'll, I'll share it with you all for sure but one of the things that's really extraordinary as you as you begin to try to understand Chinese technology on its own terms is that you realize that it is It is a different system, and that it's best understood, this seems sort of obvious but hasn't been obvious for years, that we need to begin by trying to look at it on its own terms before we import our own ideas onto it. The reason that studying the transnational flow of ideas, someone like Toffler becoming big in China, the reason that that can be so revealing, I think, is that it allows us to accentuate dimensions that differ or are unusual or surprising to observers from outside. Again, centering on that Chinese perspective, the Chinese leadership's view of these things, and how a certain ideas
1: play there in a different way than how they play in the
2: United States. That is so well put,
1: yeah. It's it's amazing. You we were talking about, about how we see this through our own lens. I mean, think about how our narratives have flipped about the relationship between technology and authoritarian states, right? Five years ago, we were still all kind of, you know, we believed that technology was going to subvert authoritarianism everywhere in the world. That, you know, it was, we believed in this kind of liberation technology idea. And it didn't take long. It took, you know, a couple of disappointments in the Arab Spring. It took Snowden. It took uh, Cambridge Analytica and, and the Russian... Uh, Hacking, to suddenly make us believe that technology was the handmaiden of authoritarianism. Uh, it's really a kind of strange thing. And then, of course, China is, is the repository of all those fears. Right. So I do think
2: there's this kind of techno-orientalism
1: that we can see where
2: there's a projection onto China of, you know, is it some sort of land of digital opium dens with internet addicts in internet cafes? Oh my God! This is, is great. <laughs> it,
1: well, this it, is it. You Are know, you, this is techno orientalism. Is your coinage? I don't know. I'll have to check. I, I I think so, but you know, in this day and age, you're absolutely right. Digital opium dens. That's what. Right.
2: I'm you know, or is it, or is it, you know, some Shangri La where they have all the secrets of AI? So I think I think that we have to really unpack those myths that we consciously or unconsciously feel, uh, or, I mean, we is the wrong word, but that many, many people in the United States, at least those who design magazine covers, seem to feel.
0: (laughs) Julian, um, we're sort of running out of time. um, And I'd like to ask you a question. There are a number of us out there, uh, cough, cough, who haven't yet read your book. uh, And uh, Kaiser speaks very highly of it. Um, Can you give us a quick introduction to the ideas in your book? Sure. So the book chimes with a lot of what we've been
2: discussing today. But the central focus of the book is how from almost as soon as Mao died in 1976, the Chinese leadership began to look around the world for economic ideas that could help shape China's development and modernization in this new post-Mao era. So we see them, as Kaiser mentioned, looking to Eastern Europe, as well as to uh, Western countries in both North America, Europe, and, and beyond. And to me, one of the really interesting implications of all of this is that we tend to have a vision Of China's reform and opening, uh, which is a myth that the Chinese Communist Party advances, that Deng Xiaoping at the third plenum said, you know, go reform and open, and then magically a world of market unfolded. And the reality is that almost every aspect of that is distorted. Some are flat wrong, and others are are simply uh, painted over. But the implications of, of Unlikely Partners, my book, are first that China's intellectual connections to the world are much more significant than I think many accounts have given credit for. That the socialist market economy that the Chinese leadership endorsed in the early 90s really can be understood in the context of global debates about socialism and capitalism, as well as in a very China-centered context. And then second, it, I hope, puts under a microscope the many myths and politically useful narratives about china's transformations that the communist party has advanced and i think that this is an area where there's still more work to be done uh and it's a really significant area that we even saw uh last year around the 40th anniversary of reform and opening that was celebrated in beijing in december but it seems to me to be a significant part of how we think about china's rise ideas like the china model and the
1: history as well as the future of the Chinese economy. Some of the things that really surprised me in reading the book were the, the, just the promiscuity, uh, the, the wide range net they cast how, how many people from just every bandwidth on the, the political spectrum you know monetarists so these milton friedman acolytes and then i mean some of that stuff stuck too i think uh, anyway it's it's fascinating and the other one of the other things that i think was really great about it was um it did look at some of these characters who were later associated with the conservative reaction to reform and surprisingly they're very on board initially i think that that was maybe a surprise to me that people like don Lichin and and which more yeah, and, uh, yeah you know and, and um what's his name, Um, uh, Chen Yun, were were not immediate, implacable foes of reform. In fact, they were in favor.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the really interesting trends in scholarship of this period that has begun to trickle over, I think, to mainstream understanding is how much figures like Hua Feng, who've been so derided in official party lore actually contributed. So oh, yeah, you know, yeah. work so work by, you know, the Chinese scholar Hong Gang and the and the Australian scholars Fred Tevis and Warren Sun have really shown us that Hua Guafeng had a tremendous amount of influence on the drive toward economic development and advanced technology and that Dung was on board. We're beginning to have a much richer picture of the reform era, of the post-Mao era, and of many of the dynamics that have been hard to
1: recapture until recently. It's more to him than the, uh, the the two whatevers. That's right. <laughs> Julian, that was just absolutely terrific. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to join us here. Great to finally have you on. Let's move on to recommendations. But before we do that, I'd like to remind our listeners that Cynic Podcast is powered by Sup China. If you enjoy the reporting, the columns and the quizzes... Hey, hey,
0: let me just interrupt you, guys. Let's let's do this spiel a bit differently this week. So, I'm Jeremy Gokorn. I edit the daily newsletter that we produce at SubChina. There's a free version that that you can get that uh, highlights one story. But if you really want to know what's going on in China, every day we summarize all the news... Uh, from China and connected to China. And you can get it every weekday by joining SubChina Access. So please join us. If you join SubChina Access, you also get access to our Slack channel where you can chat with our editorial
1: team anytime. So and uh, we hold these great chats with uh, special guests once every couple of weeks. Indeed. And, and, and they've been just terrific. Uh, we've had some uh, some wonderful conversations there. I do hope you you join. Um, let's get, we'll go on to recommendations now. Jeremy, uh, why don't you kick us off, man?
0: Okay, so I have been condescending and snobby about the Tofflers throughout this whole podcast, um, like some typical kind of, you know, uh, New York character looking down on uh, the plebs who attend TED Talks. Uh, but um, in the course of kind of doing a bit of preparation for this podcast, I stumbled across a rather interesting interview with Alvin Toffler from 2006. Um, and it was done by a People's Daily journalist. Um, and I, it, I'd like to recommend it because, first of all, uh, Toffler is clearly a smart guy and um, uh, his ideas are interesting. Um, but it also is interesting because it makes me nostalgic for the golden liberal era of Hu uh, Jintao and in 2006 when it was oh, still possible to read interesting things in the People's Daily. <laughs> so I will post the link to that and maybe reproduce it on subchina because it's actually it's not on the people's daily website that i found it it's on some blog that looks as though it's about to die so um oh it's awesome
1: thanks jeremy thanks jeremy julian
2: you're up what do you have for us so i thought about this long and hard and i have Two recommendations, which I hope doesn't violate constitutional procedure. No, no, please, uh, you One talk. is a an extraordinary. We don't have a
0: constitution, actually. Yeah, <laughs> so. right. This is this is a, a, a
2: British style system. So no, the... no, it's
0: anarchy actually. But... <laughs>
2: so first, uh, I wanted to recommend a memoir that came out a couple of years ago called Nine Continents by the uh, British Chinese writer Xiaolu Guo. Yeah, it's yeah. an astonishing book, and I uh, have been surprised at how few China watchers know it. So I I really want to recommend that because she's an extraordinary writer and it's an extraordinary memoir. Outside of the China Watcher space, I wanted to recommend the poems of W.S. Merwin, one of our great American poets who passed away recently. His poems are completely extraordinary and uh, he did some work that deals directly with Chinese poetry, but I would send uh, readers first to my favorite poem of his, The Hydra.
1: Okay, well, actually, check it out. Anthony Tao, take note of this.
0: (laughs) I'd second that. I'd never heard of this uh, poet um, uh, being a, a, you know, illiterate African, uh, uh, illiterate in American affairs, anyway. Um, And uh, after he died, I um, I read a bunch of his poems. Really wonderful.
1: Okay, I'm going to do a recommendation with strong reservations uh it's the book enlightenment now by steven pinker <laughs> i know a lot of you are out there rolling your eyes right now but uh, i think by and large it's it's a, it's a good response not only to critics of the enlightenment from the know nothing trumpian right but also and yes more problematically uh, a response to the critics from the well gosh we can't really know anything now can we i mean it's, it's all power relations and, you know from from that side as well the the academic left i mean he talks about it and you know this is something i've revisited recently he's that, that famous cp snow essay for the two cultures i mean which is still so salient in our lives i mean probably even more so maybe that should really be my recommendation is to go read the two cultures uh but, but i think it was in the uh, london review of books or or i can't remember what it was originally in but uh Anyway, there's 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 a lot of that in there, um, some, you know, new atheist screedo in there, of course. Um, there is a restatement of his thesis from his book, The Better Angels, uh, which is, you know, about how things have actually gotten better and not gotten worse uh, in our world in some very important ways. You know, the violent deaths and uh, longevity and... Uh, child mortality and all that infant mortality and all that uh anyway i mean don't don't ignore pinker uh, just because you know you've heard that that he's affiliated with the intellectual dark web or whatever he actually i think he argues in very good faith uh he's a very reasonable guy he's not like some ranting guest on the joe rogan experience he's he's actually uh pretty sensible so i i, I do with reservations recommend his book
0: I, his books on language are really really great
1: yeah it's just when people start wandering further afield they, they start uh, yeah anyway i i, I would agree his books on language are a pleasure uh, Julian, thank you so much uh, for taking the time And I hope you've had a really good time here at AAS Yeah,
2: it's a pleasure to join And thank so, you for having me on You're going to be editing a volume of Logic on China, right? That's right, so it's out in April We've, we've finished Logic it. and Apple China <laughs> the, No, the, the, the magazine's name is Logic
0: Oh, oh. It, it, it's not <laughs> lo- about I, Logic and China No, I like the
2: idea of, you know, a, a special journal on Chinese logicians They have not gotten their due <laughs> yeah.
0: lo- What that is that it? Lojixue L- yeah.
1: yeah, that's right
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, who was
1: it? Is it a, <laughs> the school of logicians. Exactly. Right, 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 right.
0: I, think I, want that, I think I've decided what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a logic学者.
1: <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> All right. Hey, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Jeremy, good to, good to talk to you as usual. Yeah. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you, Jule. Thank you. The, the Sinica Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldhorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at sinica at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at @subchina_news, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Syndicate Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Tafuta, Ta, and the new Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Hey.